Well, good morning or good afternoon now. I'd like to welcome you all to CSIS uh, for today's event. I'm Mark Hansi and a senior advisor uh, here at CSIS. Uh, before beginning, I need to make a simple administrative announcement, and, and that is that in the unlikely event of an emergency, I will give you instructions about what to do. We'll either leave through the front or the back of the building. I ask you to um, look, look at the uh, emergency exits uh, while we're be, uh, beginning here. And now to our distinguished guest. Uh, we're honored to have uh, Admiral Christoph um, Prozac um, here uh, with us today, the chief of the French uh, Navy. The relationship between the US Navy and the French Navy goes back to the beginning of the Republic, uh, but it's become much closer in the last uh, several years as we face a common enemy um, uh, in ISIS and in the proliferation of chemical weapons. Uh, the Admiral has had a distinguished career. Uh, he served on surface ships and submarines. Uh, he's overseen naval commandos. He has run the Navy's communications and personnel offices uh, and received a PhD from the United States. Uh, and our program today then will be as follows. The Admiral will give um, some remarks. Uh, we'll have a discussion up here and then we'll open it up for uh, questions. And at the end, then, the Admiral will have a few minutes to talk with uh, uh, the press uh, who are here. So with that, let me turn things over uh, to the Admiral. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to, to, to be in front of you uh, today. And uh, my aim is to share with you my perspective on the world and its uh, many contemporary issues. And first of all, I want to talk about France's global footprint and how that links with our version of the world threat assessment. And then I will open up the floor to hear your thoughts and answer your questions. Let me begin with a question. How can France, a country slightly smaller in size than Texas, and with a GDP just below that of California, have a worldview that is A, unilateral, and B, worth, worth listening to. There is a myriad of good and bad answers to this question. History, French language, UN Security Council, soccer, cuisine, wine. One aspect is rarely uh, uh, brought forward and yes, I think it's one of the most compelling and certainly one of the most enduring because of our unique maritime outlook. Thanks to numerous overseas territories scattered all around the world, France has responsibility for and jurisdiction over the second largest exclusive economic zone in the world at just over 11 million square kilometers it equates to the combined land masses of both the US and Mexico. These often very small territories afford us a distinct political advantage. France borders each and every ocean, each and every continent on the planet. When we deal with Australia, we do so as neighbors from New Caledonia. When we deal with South Africa, we do so as neighbors from our Indian Ocean islands in La Réunion and Mayotte. When we deal with Brazil, we do so as neighbors from French Guiana. Our nuclear capability to relies heavily on the maritime, thanks to our permanently deployed fleet of nuclear submarines continuously at sea since 1972. France has a fully independent nuclear deterrent. And thanks to our satellites, our frigates and destroyers deployed to hotspots around the world, like today in Eastern Med, France has the capacity for strategic autonomy. The ocean, as well as space and cyberspace, provide us the strategic depth our landmass has not. So, in a nutshell, 
our wide-ranging sovereignty relies primarily on the maritime domain. Our alliances are shaped by our maritime heritage. And of course, beyond our national territory, we care very much about the continued safety and security of the global commons, i.e. the high seas, space, and cyberspace. Hence, why I'm standing here to present you with France's view on world affairs, obviously heavily biased towards all things dark, blue, and salty. I'm going to do by following three major headlines. The changing character of strategic threats, the changing character of warfare, and the changing character of society. We'll start with threats. As you may know, in the last year, we've been through a thorough defense review cycle, which is the equivalent to the US national security strategy or the UK strategic defense and security review. It started off with a strategic review last summer, which was resources informed, but not resources constrained. It then got trans translated into a six-year defense plan covering 2019 to 2025, and as we will discuss, engaging the future beyond this horizon, be, uh, uh, up to 2030. Which is in the final, uh, and this plan is in the final stages of being voted through the National Assembly and Senate. This strategic review highlights a number of key themes that relate directly to our maritime presence and interest around the world, and which are shaping our future maritime strategy and capability planning. First, an ever increasing globalization of vital trade. These figures are well rehearsed. 95% uh, of trade goes by sea. 99% of internet data, data is carried through submarine cables. Remarkably few cables. Actually only 17 between North America and Europe. These structural changes happen on a very short amount of time. Only a few decades ago, our economies were much more self-sufficient and much more resilient to external disruption. We have become universally dependent on cheap manufactured goods and uninterrupted, uninterrupted internet. We are increasingly dependent on the secure flow of maritime traffic and yet it remains very vulnerable. The second key theme for the strategic review is that crises have become nomadic at an alarming pace. The terrorist franchises such as Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State cannot be contained to a few territories. Once bitten in Afghanistan, they popped up in the Philippines or Yemen. And defeating them in Syria and Iraq doesn't make us entirely safe in our own European countries. Those tensions must often occur either at sea or near the sea because A, an increasing majority of people live in literal areas, and B, you can shift people, weapons, drugs more easily by sea. Very well illustrated in the northern Indian Ocean. This does not apply only to low-key threats to terrorists and pirates. It goes all the way to the most sophisticated and dangerous forms of military hardware. Through the oceans, you can move massive amounts of forces unhindered. No diplomatic arrangements need to be sought, no collateral damage, no media to be expected, a much higher legal threshold for aggression and retaliation. This is why strategic mobility is more necessary than ever. This is why aircraft carriers are so convenient. This is why China, China and India are procuring several of them over the forthcoming years, and why we continue to renew our own, despite the never-ending urban legend that new hypersonic missiles will soon make carriers irrelevant. Crises have become nomadic, 
So our military might has to be nomadic. Ships, nuclear propulsion, maritime aviation, everything that can increase strategic mobility is welcome. Thirdly, the weakness of our peacekeeping tools and institution is a real concern. It would be very naive to forget about the Cold War and only remember a time when all conflicts were resolved peacefully through the UN conciliation and at last resort military intervention by an alliance of nations as first and last seen in Kuwait in 1991. Yes, during the Cold War, the UN Security Council was frozen in a way that's no different from today. Yes, the right of veto was exercised recklessly for partisan aims and a perhaps even higher rate than today. But due to the threat of mutually assured destruction, violence was contained. Many wars were avoided. Many treaties were signed, sort one and two, UN closed, start, etc. Even outer space and the Antarctica were colonized by peace. Today is different. Advanced military technology proliferates everywhere. Customary international law is violated every day, as shown is the, in the South China Sea. Our commitment in France to the rule of law rem remains unshakable. The maintenance of stability, including through the use of military instruments, is, is central to our strategy. This policy was detailed by our former defense secretary, now for uh, Defense Secre Secretary, now Foreign Secretary, Jean-Yves Le Drian, at the Shangri-La Dialogue in 2016. We don't treat the South China Sea disputes, dispute as a regional issue, but as a much broader international issue, one of the credibility of the international order itself. This is why, on a regular basis, about 10 times a year, French vessels sail through the area. This is one of the reasons behind our newfound strategic partnership with Australia, and why, in three days' time, a French task group, including a helicopter carrier and a Lafayette-class frigate, will leave Australia, heading from Viet for Vietnam through the South China Sea. Fourth, maritime territories are the most vulnerable to natural and man-made disasters. Hurricanes, tsunamis, major pollutions are more likely to hit islands and littoral. Remember Fukushima, Katrina, the Torre Canyon, and the Amoco Cadiz oil spills. French overseas territories are likely to be significantly affected, as shown in the aftermath of Hurricane Irma in the Caribbean last year. There are also some important second effects of these catastrophes in the maritime domain. When some islands and coastal areas become uninhabitable, when new areas are becoming arid as others are flooded, when fish stocks are pillaged, like recently in the Gulf of Guinea, mass migration of people become inevitable. I could dwell longer on geopolitics, but I want to say a few words about my second strategic strand, technology. Yesteryear, if you wanted to be a pirate, you had to be a good sailor. Actually, if you wanted to succeed, you had to be a better sailor than the merchant shipping you wanted to attack. Nowadays, with a GPS and an RPG-7, any Somali teenager can attack a supertanker on the high seas, 100 miles from his village. The high seas used to be the realm of professionals. There used to be a clear hierarchy between Premier League players, regional powers, and amateurs. And after the end of the Cold War, we assumed that we, Western navies, would be and remain forever the only Premier League players left. This assumption led us to reduce and reduce again our numbers, hulls, jets, hallows, assuming that technological supremacy would make up for numbers. 
in 2006, an Israeli corvette got hit by a modern anti-ship missile fired from Beirut airport by Hezbollah militiamen. Around 2008, Russia and China started investing in the navies. Submarines mostly for the former, all sorts of warships up to and including aircraft carriers for the later. In 2008, we saw for the first time in decades, if not centuries, Chinese warships in the Western Indian Ocean. Around 2013, we started getting busier and busier in the North Atlantic. And in the last four years alone, China launched 80 ships, the equivalent of the entire French surface fleet. And this resurgence is not only about numbers, it's also about quality. Russian submarines are modern, incredibly fast and silent. Chinese can build full aircraft carriers. So our Cold War assumption that we could train numbers for high-end technology and remain ahead forever is, if you'll excuse the pun, dead in the water. And those state-of-the-art pieces of equipment, electric diesel submarines, cruise missiles, A2AD systems, get widely exported even to smaller regional powers. Those maritime weapons and shore-based anti-access systems have found their way into an ever-widening circle of hands, both state and non-state actors. This proliferation of high-tech weapons across the world is a clear threat to its stability. And as such, a global strategic trend for the years and decades to come. My second point regarding technology is innovation. If I remember the world wars, radars, aircraft, submarines, sonars, even the internet was created and augmented by the military. The military used to drive civilian innovation, now in many areas. It's the other way around. Off Yemen, the Houthi in the Strait of Bab el-Mandeb have already attacked two warships using civilian mode remote controlled surface charges. It is obvious that our large, somehow bureaucratic military organizations need to become more agile in incorporating the best of civilian innovation. But we can just count on civilian innovation. We still need to encourage and foster innovation from within. We need to promote talent. We need to better accept failure too. For multiple failure is a necessary byproduct of breakthrough innovation. This is why our Defense Secretary, Mrs. Florence Parley, announced the creation of a specialist innovation agency this year within the French Ministry of Defense. And of course, finally, international cooperation is a powerful way to exchange ideas, reduce the cost of failure, and find economies of scales. My third and final strategic thread is about human resources. It's not as imminent as terrorism threat or conspicuous as state-on-state -state conflict, there are a number of issues affecting our Western societies which are particularly visible in our militaries, which have a geopolitical angle and could prove disastrous in the future if ignored. Western societies are changing. Our younger generation's aspirations are changing. Work-life balance, permanent internet connection, the decreasing attractiveness of manual and technical career path, to name but a few. These factors affect our industries. These factors shape our workforce. And these factors affect our Western navies. And yet, I can just offer blood, sweat, and salty tears. Ships still have to go away for long periods, sometimes at very short notice. Bunks are still cramped, families and loved ones are still far away, internet reception is still very bad in the middle of the ocean, and even worse, 
under a thousand feet of water. No 4G in a submarine, no instant Facebook notification. Sounds silly for my generation, but I have to take into account that it is pivotal for younger generations. This recruitment retention issue is something about, about which we are thinking hard, to which we don't yet have all the answers, but which I'm convinced it is an existential threat for armed forces with the Navy's first in line. Before opening to the floor, I would like to finish uh, with a few words about the Franco-American naval relation. Alliances are a fundamental part of our strategy. Alliances are more necessary than ever to manage and smooth out the complexity and widespread nat nature of emerging security threats that I described earlier. Alliances help us share innovation, tactics, and even personal. Alliances send a message of strength and solidarity to our potential adversaries. Whether we consider the spectrum of major state-on-state crisis, rape, rapid response to terrorist incidents, or act of piracy, or quick reaction to humanitarian disaster, our cooperation with all interested parties, government, military forces, NGOs, etc., will be vital to their resolution. But this cooperation cannot be decided on the spot. Interoperability, knowledge, trust, and friendship must be built over time. This is the reason why I'm here, to thank the US Navy for allowing our own carrier air wing to retrain on USS George Bush when Charles de Gaulle is in refit. There are only two navies in the world who are currently operating aircraft carriers with catapults and arresting wires, the US Navy and the French Navy. We operate side by side every day, on every ocean, up to the highest end of the spectrum of conflict and against the most violent threats. We have been operating together in the North Atlantic. We are together off the Syrian coast. We are together in the Indian Ocean. Last year, US Marines landed off a French amphib in Guam, in the Western Pacific. This high level of interoperability but also this level of trust and friendship has been developed through a 250-year-old strategic alliance from the Battle of Chesapeake, the name of the operation we are conducting now with the US Navy, to the Battle of the Atlantic. And I'm usually grateful to, for this. My aim for this sort of presentation was to convince you that despite the highs and lows that any two countries in the world inevitably encountered throughout that relationship, our worldview, our beliefs, our interests, and more importantly, our values remain remarkably close. And I would now particularly love to be challenged if any of you disagree with that, for it's my profound belief. Thank you for your attention. Well, thank you, Admiral. Admiral um, uh, Brazuk, we, uh, before the uh, event, were talking about two questions that I mentioned. The first was, what can the United States do to be a better ally? And then, as you said, the related question, what did we learn from this operation, this real-world operation in Syria that we can apply to future real-world operations? We have to un understand each other, not, not only on a political level, not only on a strategic level, but on a tactical level, on a technical level. And, and my... Uh, the questions we are always talking about with Admiral Richardson, uh, the Chief of Naval Operation of the U.S. Navy, is interoperability. You are evolving very fast. Your technology is evolving very fast. Your systems are permanently evolving. And so interoperability is not just a, a state. Stable state is not something which is uh, 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 rigid. It's 
it's an ambition. It's something you have always to build, something you have always to work on. And on data links, on communication system, on combat systems. And this is a permanent work. And my main request when we, when we have a staff talks is work and let us give us the, the opportunity and the time and the, uh, uh, the will to keep this uh, uh, interoperability. This is my main point. And, and when we talked about Syria, there is something uh, uh, important is that is the, uh, the pace of the crisis. Uh, uh, between the use of chemical weapons until uh, the strike, a few weeks uh, uh, um, separated the, the, the two events. So if you want to integrate a task force in order to, 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 uh, to strike on Syria, you cannot imagine a long process. You cannot imagine to send aircrafts and warships to the US coast and have a long period of training just to, ref to, 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 uh, uh, to, to Re, uh, a new interoperability of processes and, and it's just something that uh, with the crisis, with the nomadic crisis we have, with the uh, uh, unpredictable world we have, it's something uh, you have, that has to be built in. So uh, uh, what we have to work is uh, to be able to have a, a plug and fight French Navy. So uh, uh, each time we have a crisis developing very fast requesting uh, uh, very fast answers, we are able to, to work together and, and respond to the crisis. Because if you think about uh, the, uh, 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 the Syrian operation, there are several levels of, of answers, a political level, of course, which is the, 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 the main level, and then a strategic uh, uh, level, who will command and who will uh, 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 coordinate all the actors of the uh, of the military answer and then a tactical, uh, a tactical level. And all, all this has to be uh, uh, phased. And this is on, on this kind of subjects, well, the, what we're doing actually off Norfolk with the Chesapeake exercise, what we've seen during, uh, uh, off the coast of Syria is uh, the urgency of being ready to plug and fight, which is keeping a permanent interoperability with uh, our assets. Thank you. Uh, let me ask a little different question, but related, which is the tension, as we call it, between capability and capacity. And I know that the French Navy faces the same tension. That is, you have global commitments, you have uh, dependencies around the world, you need presence there. That requires numbers of ships, but we also face some very high-end threats, China, Russia, other countries, that requires then very expensive, very capable ships. Our Navy is struggling with that tension. You seem to have come to a, uh, a solution with the high-low mix. You have some patrol craft, and then you have some very sophisticated, very high-end. And I was wondering if that is a fair representation and how you have come to that um, compromise. We'll probably make a, a virtue out of necessity. And uh, because of budget constraint, uh, 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 we had to, to, to find new solutions. And. Uh, um, <clears throat> Well, first, we, I, I would give two answers, one on capabilities and one on organization. On capabilities, uh, we, are, we, we always had uh, patrol boats, uh, which main combat system, uh, on which the main combat system is the flag, the, the French flag, uh, uh, signifying to anyone who would, who would 
want to, to come in our EEZ mm -hmm. and uh, fish illegally or, or, or contest our sovereignty on the EEZ would, would see the flag and would know that thousands of kilometers away there is an aircraft carrier. There are high-end capabilities with nuclear submarines with uh, 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 free aid that will be able to come to the southern Indian Ocean or to the Pacific Ocean to, diff to, to, to uh, protect our uh, EEZ. So this is the, the, uh, uh, the discrimination between low-end uh, 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 capabilities that uh, uh, represent, uh, well, that, uh, that are directly related to the higher-end capabilities of the Navy. Uh, this is why I, I just would just have one aircraft carrier instead of twelve, but I would prefer to have twelve. Uh, uh, well, so would we. <laughs> uh, uh, the second, the, the second answer is a, a, a matter of organization. Uh, we cannot afford to have a, a, a coast guards like in the U.S. Navy, and we cannot have, afford to have. Uh, a French Navy and a Coast Guard. So uh, we had a, a specific organization we called the, uh, the, uh, um, the, the, the Action of State at Sea, where a French uh, admiral is in charge of uh, uh, coordinating the, all the assets of the agencies that are working at sea. He, uh, uh, that's the Navy, the Customs, the gendarmerie, the police, and instead of having a specific organization, we are just coordinating the assets of different, uh, of different agencies in uh, uh, at sea. So uh, 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 this is how we, we, we deal with the, the low end, the low enforcement uh, uh, activities in our EEZ or along our, uh, uh, the coast of, uh, of France. Miesco question that builds on some of your remarks regarding people. The French Navy has been quite successful, I understand, in recruiting and retaining sailors. Uh, there are always gaps, but my understanding is that you have not had serious difficulties. Um, and our Navy has been relatively successful also, although it has had a hard time recruiting some special technical skills like cyber. Uh, and I was wondering, what, first, what does the French Navy do that has made it successful in recruiting and uh, retaining sailors? Particularly, as you said, in this new environment when you have millennials who want a better work-life balance, um, who want Facebook and uh, maybe uh, 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 it's not a, as amenable to a long time at sea, which you know, the ocean and the Navy uh, demands. So what has the, the French Navy done to be relatively successful there? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm puzzled by this question. Uh, and I, I, when I go to Germany, uh, uh, I see that some of the ships, some of the submarines are, uh, uh, cannot go at sea because they don't have a crew. Uh, 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 the, the Royal Navy, even the Royal Navy, asks some specialists in electricity and uh, 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 mechanics to, to, to work on their ships to, at sea. So there is, in Europe at least, a, a, a very serious crisis on, on, on uh, uh, human resources in the navies. We are not yet affected, and, and I don't know why. I try to have some explanations. First, I think we have, we have been attacked on our side by, by terrorists in, uh, uh, um, at a scale that no other European countries have known yet. And so I think there is uh, uh, a clear sense of the, uh, uh, what the people are doing when they are going at sea. When, when the shoulder goes, is going off Syria and Iraq and is uh, 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 participating into the operation against ISIS, everyone on board knows what, why we are doing that. 
there is a, a, a sense uh, in, the, in the mission which is obvious. The second thing is that uh, we are deploying all the time. We are, uh, because of budget constraints, you have some navies that are uh, um, technology, technologically speaking at a very high level, but they don't go at sea. They don't have, uh, 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 they don't spend a lot of days at sea. We do that. We do that because uh, uh, we have overseas territories. We do that because we are involved, we have a, a strong involvement in, the, in cooperation with African states, for example, in the Gulf of Guinea. We do that because we have uh, 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 our bases in uh, Abu Dhabi and Djibouti, and we have been patrolling the northern Indian Ocean. We do that because we think that what's happening in South China Sea is not just a regional issue, but a general uh, 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 something about uh, uh, international order. And uh, it's about our EEZ, our own EEZ. So we are at sea. And, and I think this is, uh, uh, th this may, may be a difference. Uh, then, but, but I think we, we could have this crisis. So we are, uh, uh, I want to have, I want to, to make a better deal for the people who go on in the Navy. I want to uh, 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 multiply the crews on the ship. I want to have a two crew system on our uh, uh, frigates like we have on our submarines. Uh, I need to have more women in the Navy uh, uh, and I, I need to open the recruitment. I, I don't think we are uh, uh, safe on, on these uh, uh, questions. One bad answer to this question is reduce the crews. Our engineers explained to us uh, uh, 10 years ago that if you should just reduce the crew and you will solve the problem. And you put computer everywhere. And, uh, and this is a very bad uh, uh, answer to the question. And uh, let me explain. Uh, we, 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 our frigates, our ASW frigate, anti-submarine uh, warfare frigate, where had a crew of 250 sailors, and now they are, they were supposed to be at the beginning 94. Wow. So you, you, you more than divide by two. But the first commanding officer of this of this new kind uh, type of frigate told me one day, okay, with 94 I can do the job. But with 93, I cannot do anything. <laughs> so we lost resilience. Mm -hmm. and, and after all, this is a combat ship. It's supposed to, 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 be, to be hit, it's supposed to have casualties. So the, we, we, we lost resilience, and so we had to, to increase the number of the sailors. But second thing, uh, uh, in reducing the crew, uh, the, the, the engineers did the easiest part of it. They reduced. The, the basic sailors. And, and the pyramid of the crew was just not diminished, but it, the shape was transformed. And instead of having a pyramid like that, we're almost having a pyramid like that. Mm. And, and with a lot of experts and very few basic sailors. But how do you produce an expert when you don't have enough basic sailors? Where do they come from? Where, how do the experts learn to go at sea for three or four months? How do they learn to live among a crew with people they haven't seen before? And, and there is a very good book uh, uh, on this topic that has been written by Norbert Elias uh, in uh, the 50s. It's called The Invention of Naval Profession. And, and explain uh, on his, uh, with this sociologist uh, point of view, uh, uh, the, uh, <coughs> the tension between uh, being a military, uh, uh, having a, um, a bit being a military commander, and having the technical ability of a sailor, and uh, the two things at the beginning, at least of the Royal Navy in uh, in the uh, uh, 17th century, uh, uh, created high tensions between the people who had the technical, the technical skills of being sailors, like Francis Drake, and, and those who had the uh, uh, social legitimacy 
to command armies at sea. Uh, I recommend it. And, and, and I think change have not evolved very much about that. You, you need to... Uh, 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 a military sailor is a military personnel, but he's also a sailor. You have two things to learn. Let me ask uh, maybe one more question, which is about the gendarmerie. There is, I believe, a gendarmerie yes. marin. Uh -huh. And the United States has no equivalent to a gendarmerie, a national police force. Uh, and I mean, there are long historical reasons why that's true, but there are places where that can be very useful. And I was wondering about their role, how they work with the, the Navy, and, you know, what, and, and what their role is in naval operations. Okay, they are, um, their role is changing. Uh, their primary role was protection of the naval bases. Uh, they have, uh, uh, they have, they are low officers, and uh, so they have this power. But now we are using them both in our uh, uh, low ends operation, like counter narcotics operation, like uh, illegal fishing operation. And we are using them in, uh, in civilian, uh, along the coast, just to gather information. And uh, I am concerned about uh, uh, terrorist threats uh, at sea. And they, they participate into the gathering of information, uh, a weak signal detection, to, to orient our uh, uh, capabilities of prevention or intervention against uh, something happening at sea. So there are, they are 1,000. They are under my command in the Navy. Uh, and uh, with the, uh, uh, the interlink of uh, uh, multi-agency operation in the EEZ, close to the, to the coast, they play a very important role. OK, one last question, and then we'll open it up, which is, you have a unique background in that you have an education both as a French naval officer in France and professional military education in the United States. So you have seen both systems. And I was wondering if you could compare them and how they're different, you know, and how they are the same. Well, they are different, not, not, not because in the, uh, they are different, just like the uh, um, university, American universities are different from, from French universities. Uh, I, uh, it was a, an extremely positive experience for me to, 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 uh, to study in, uh, in the US. I appreciated very much the quality of the professors and the quality of the uh, 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 <clears throat> and all, all the the means we had computers and and everything like that to uh, 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 to work and I appreciated very much the fact that it was uh, very international and nowadays when I go to uh, 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 foreign countries uh, I always meet uh, at decisive positions uh, uh, people. I worked with when I was in uh, in the U.S. in 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 my school, and but there is something also different. I think I was uh, uh, I was 30 when I came to the U.S. to study, and I think it's a good age to go to school, and things should be reversed. You you should start working and then go to school, and you will appreciate very much uh, uh, <laughs> your time in uh, uh, in the school. So uh, it was uh, an Extraordinary experience for, for, for me. Great, great. Um, we'll open it up for people who have questions for Admiral Brzuk. Uh, two things. First, if, uh, um, wait for a microphone, and uh, here comes a microphone. And the second thing is I ask that when you ask a question that there be a question mark at the end of your question. I'm uh, Peter Humphrey, an intelligence analyst and a former U.S. diplomat. I'm not persuaded that the American navies and the French navies can at a moment's notice, and I mean within minutes, network amongst all their assets. 
uh, for missile tracking, for unidentified aircraft, for submarine tracing, in the acoustic and radar environments. Am I wrong about that, or is that something we should be working on? Uh, uh, you, you mean we are not able to exchange a uh, track? Well, the U.S. Navy, you know, between all its ships and its land, land assets, can network and therefore track a submarine, a missile, yes. an aircraft. But I don't, I'm not persuaded that that capability extends to the expansive French Navy as well. I mean, you would like that no, to it does. be, you'd like to be able to throw a switch and instantly the 12 French naval assets join the American network. Well, I, and I, I don't I, think that's true, and that's probably something we should work on. Yeah, uh, uh, we have basic links that are standardized thanks to NATO. NATO is, uh, is producing standardization for, uh, for example, data links uh, between ships. It's the uh, link 11, link 16, link, link 22. When you have the standard, it's just, just like internet protocol, but applied to a combat system. And this works. Uh, and we, we are applying it every day. But this is not enough. Uh, um, this is not enough when you want to exchange uh, videos or photos or, or, or uh, 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 targeting files and things like that. And, and on these networks, things are evolving very fast. In the, in the U.S. Navy, and we have to, 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 to be in the same rhythm. So the, the basis is there, but when you go to very uh, complicated operations with a uh, 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 large, well, big exchange of data, we, we, we need to, to be in the face of, the, of our partners, the American partners. Uh, do I, did I answer your question? Uh, I, I, I'm just worrying about an adversary asset sweeping into a place with American ships, French ships, and suddenly they cannot integrate their networks on five minutes' notice. And, and I think that's an important capability. Okay. Well, today, uh, uh, in Eastern Med, we, we are or in the Indian Ocean, we are, we are linked. It's, uh, even if we are not operating, it, it's routine. And then if, if we go for a specific operation, then we have to, 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 to get more links and, and more specialized links. Yes. Okay, up, up here. Uh, Michael Mosetic, PBS Online NewsHour. You've described very interesting cooperation and interaction between the American Navy and the French Navy, and also to some extent with the Australian Navy. But I wonder, is there anything like this at the moment between the French Navy, the Royal Navy, and the German Navy? Because everything we read here is that those latter two forces have been pretty well hollowed out and there just aren't the same number of ships and ships that are operating on a daily basis, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I would say it, it, it depends on the theater. Uh, uh, for example, of the coast of Libya, uh, uh, we are part in, uh, on, in, uh, of a European operation called SOFIA uh, uh, to deal with the, uh, 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 the dramatic flow of migrants going out of uh, Libya and uh, heading towards Europe. And I know, we, everybody knows that uh, uh, this is not enough and, and that you need to have, uh, to have the countries inside uh, the continent and that people who are going to the coast of Libya uh, come from countries that are very far away in the south. So in this operation, we are working with the Germans, we are working with the Italians, we are working with the English. Uh, the, the Royal Navy, we have a constant presence, uh, uh, cooperation with the African navies in the Gulf of Guinea. And there we're working with the Spanish and with the Portuguese on a permanent basis. So I would say it depends on, on, on the, uh, on the <coughs> theaters. Uh, uh, for the Northern Indian Ocean and uh, the, the Eastern Med, and the North Atlantic, 
uh, Americans or, or uh, uh, the US Navy is uh, 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 our first partner. But, but not the only one. In, in the back there. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Admiral. Uh, I'm Phoenix Huang with Hong Kong Phoenix TV. Uh, two days ago, uh, during the Chesapeake exercise that the uh, US CNO, Admiral, Her uh, Admiral Richardson, uh, told the reporter that he predicted that um, the situation in the Gulf area will come into a period of uncertainty. So. What is your assessment uh, of the future situation in the Gulf area after President Trump has exited the Iran deal? And my second question is about generally uh, wh what do you think of the NATO will face the most urgent challenge uh, against Russians' uh, challenge in the Baltic Sea? Thank you. Well, as you noticed, uh, I'm not a political leader, and uh, uh, I would like to remain on my technical uh, uh, level uh, uh, on your question on, uh, on the Persian Gulf. What, what I've been written recently in our strategic review is that uh, 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 the unpredictability of the uh, international relations uh, uh, would be uh, uh, higher in the years to come, and, and this may be an example of this uh, unpredictability. Uh, uh, in, uh, in Europe, as, uh, as you know, NATO is working on uh, a new organization, and uh, especially with the uh, creation of a new Joint Force Command that will be hosted in uh, Norfolk, Virginia, to address the specific uh, uh, question of uh, of maritime operation in the northern Atlantic, and uh, and we 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 agree with this uh, uh, maritime uh, uh, effort in, uh, within NATO, which is uh, uh, very much continental-minded, uh, and we are interested in having a, a more maritime flavor in uh, in uh, this oper in the operations of NATO. Uh, over here in front. Thank you, Admiral. Leo Michelle, Commanding Council. Could you update us a little bit on Leo Michelle with the Atlantic Council? Could you update us about the major milestones for the uh, planned modernization of your uh, your nuclear submarines, the uh, the missile launcher submarines, in terms of dates? And do you see any opportunities in the future for? either bilateral or cooperation or trilateral cooperation perhaps involving the UK uh, uh, in the in the construction the the renovation of your uh, your new submarines uh, <clears throat> well the, the uh, defense plan I talked about that uh, will be adopted by uh, well hopefully by uh, uh, the National Assembly and Senate uh, mm, uh, includes the renewal of the uh, SSBN um, uh, starting in 2020. So uh, we'll have uh, in 2020 we'll, we'll start renewing uh, and, and working on the third generation of SSBN, and they should be operational at the beginning of the 30s. This is what is written in the law. As you know, uh, 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 France is very uh, uh, <coughs> uh, spending a lot of money in order to keep an autonomous nuclear deterrence. And there is nothing, both in the strategic review and in the defense plan, that uh, 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 minimize this autonomy. So. Uh, uh, the idea is to keep this autonomy. However, uh, 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 well, however, in uh, with the uh, uh, we are working with our allies on on, on submarine issues, but uh, but this one is well for France is very specific and uh, and the main. Uh, uh, 
<coughs> quality of it is uh, autonomy. Yes, sir. Nate Lucas from the Congressional Research Service. Uh, I'm Iral. Ten years ago, when I was in the Department of Defense, my French interlocutors argued, I thought very convincingly, that it would be very difficult for France to engage in military operations, particularly with the, UN the United States, without a resolution from the United Nations or from NATO or from the EU. Um, based on the strategic review that you have just done, um, has there been any change in that based on your view of the world around? Is it more likely or less likely that you would operate autonomously in the military operations in the future? No, I, I, I think this is, this is still the basis uh, on, uh, of, our, uh, uh, of our action. Uh, and, uh, and as I told you, one of the concerns that is uh, 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 underlined in the strategic review is the uh, weakening of the international tools for the resolution of conflicts. And, uh, and, and so we're still in this, in this trend. Any, okay, one more up here. Hi, Pascal Siegel for Ankara Consulting. Um, can you speak a little more about the Indo-Pacific uh, strategy and what do you expect from it? Okay, uh, first, Pacific. And uh, as I said, we are uh, in New Caledonia and Tahiti. We are uh, 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 we have part of France that are in the Pacific. We are concerned about South China Sea, as I said, and we are sending almost every month a ship in uh, in South China Sea because. Uh, uh <coughs> As Jean-Yves Le Drian said in the uh, Shangri-La Shangri Dialogue in 2016, uh, uh, we don't think it's a regional issue. Being the second maritime country in the world after the US, uh, uh, everything that uh, uh, weakens the uh, 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 international law at sea is, uh, is uh, a matter of concern. So we want to uh, reaffirm every Every as uh, as many times as possible, we our uh, uh, attachment to uh, international law at sea. And uh, our uh, the second uh, uh, what we see in the western uh, in, in the Indian Ocean, as you know, we we have uh, Réunion Island, which is part of France, and Mayotte. There are two uh, uh, what we call départements uh, uh, counties. Uh, in the Indian Ocean, and uh, so we are riverine of uh, the Indian Ocean, and we we are seeing the uh, the maritime strategic uh, uh, landscape is changing dramatically since 2008, since uh, uh, the piracy crisis in uh, in the Gulf of Aden. It, um, I think that in the history of piracy, uh, uh, some historians say that uh, it has always been a, a good uh, pretext for uh, uh, great powers to come in, uh, in, uh, in the regions they were not used to be. And, and for example, between 2008, there was no Chinese warship in the, in the Western Indian Ocean, and now uh, uh, we have 10, 12 uh, 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 Chinese warships in this region with a, uh, uh, a base in Djibouti, and uh, they are very professional. They are uh, uh, um, uh, it's very easy to, to, to work with them, but you, you have to admit that there is a, a very deep change in the landscape in the uh, northern Indian Ocean. And uh, uh, we, are, we are 
are heavily dependent on the oil coming out of the uh, Persian Gulf, going through the Strait of Hormuz and the Strait of Bab el-Mandeb and then the Suez Canal. We are very dependent on, as I said, on the uh, maritime flow coming from uh, 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 coming through the Straits and uh, going to Europe. So we are very uh, 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 paying a lot of attention to the stability, the maritime stability in this area. And when things are changing and are evolving very deeply, as it is the case uh, uh, today, uh, uh, we are paying a lot of attention to, uh, to the situation. All right, one last question in back there. Okay, thank you. Zhou uh, Siqin from Shanghai Institute for International Studies and also visiting fellow in CSIS. And uh, I find uh, a very interesting uh, Atlantic, uh, Indian Ocean, and also Pacific, but uh, just the one Arctic Ocean is not uh, mentioned. And I wanted to know the French Navy's uh, Arctic uh, strategy. And, and this is the first question. And the second is about, uh, you see, uh, French has uh, our uh, existence in uh, South Pacific. And also, Vietnam and uh, Cambodia is also the uh, once uh, uh, colonies of uh, France. And I wanted to know uh, the role of uh, French Navy in South Pacific and also your cooperation with Cambodia and uh, Vietnam. Thank you. Okay, uh, uh, in the South Pacific, our uh, uh, naval assets are light assets. Uh, as you mentioned, we have patrol boats, light frigates, and, and their main mission is to control our EEZ that are gigantic in the Pacific. Uh, uh, we have noticed that there is uh, a huge amount of illegal fishing in the Southern Pacific. And uh, um, we have recently uh, uh, found some uh, illegal, what we call, uh, what are called blue boats uh, in the EEZ of uh, New Caledonia and uh, boats that were coming from Vietnam and uh, uh, fishing uh, in, uh, in this area. So uh, um, our uh, main effort there is, is just law enforcement, control of the EEZ. What is not control is, uh, is uh, uh, pH and polluted, and what is polluted and pH is then contested. So this, this is what we have in the Southern Pacific light assets. Sometimes, coming from uh, continental France, we, like, like nowadays, we have a, an amphibious ship and a frigate uh, 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 going in this area and uh, 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 training with the Australian Navy, for example. And we have found recently that uh, there is some uh, 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 narcotic uh, uh, trade between South America and Australia. And we're working on that. We have intercepted several ships uh, uh, loaded with uh, cocaine coming from uh, uh, South America and directed to Australia. Uh, uh, we, I, I, the, uh, um, the amphibious ship, w w which is uh, nowadays in uh, Australia, will will leave Australia and we'll go to uh, Vietnam and we'll have an exercise with Vietnam. But uh, sometimes when, when we go in the region we have exercises, but Vietnam is not yet uh, one of our regular partners uh, uh, partner in the, in the area. It, it, it might become, but it's not yet. We, we have a strong relationship with Malaysia, with Indonesia, with Australia. This is our strong partners in, in, the, uh, in the area. And, and about the Arctic, uh, which is the first part of your questions, uh, question, we are just following what's, what's, uh, how things are evolving. But so far, it's, uh, 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 what we're seeing is um, uh, experimental, uh, 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 experiments of ships going uh, off uh, in the north of Russia and uh, and instead of going uh, through the Indian Ocean, it's not yet uh, uh, a huge trend and a huge uh, uh, flux of, uh, of ships 
and, and goods. We're just following what's going on there. Great. Well, I want to be mindful of the Admiral's time. Admiral Prozuk has uh, some, uh, a little time here at the end to talk to journalists, if some of you want to come up. Uh, please uh, join me in thanking the Admiral for taking time out of his schedule to join us today. Thank you, Admiral. Thank you very much.